This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, and I'm very excited to welcome our guest today, Sophus Hell. Sophus Hell is a writer, translator, and cultural historian currently living in Berlin. In 2021, Yale University Press released his new translation of Gilgamesh in English from the Akkadian to much acclaim. Today, we are here to talk about Hell's most recent book with the press, Ahedwana, the complete poems of the world's first author. This book is the first complete translation of her hymns from the original Sumerian, with additional commentary on their reception in both the ancient and modern world. Welcome, Sophus, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. I'm wondering if we can begin with your first encounter of Ahedwana and her writing. What inspired you to pursue a full translation of her work? Absolutely. So I first came across in Hidwana and her poems during my very first year at uh, university, and I was really immediately struck by it. It really was love at first sight. Um, not so much perhaps by the poems, which uh, in the translation I read, I still struggle to make sense of, but just this fascinating figure from the ancient world that has compelled me uh, and fascinated me for yeah almost a decade at this point. And so when I was asked to write a student uh, term paper, uh, I naturally chose Hidwana. So she really has been uh, with me in my academic career very much from day one. That's so lovely. I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners who don't know, you know much about Hedwana more about the period in which she lived, what was her life like, and how did this translate into her hymns and her writing? So one of the fascinating things about Nhidwana is exactly the period in which she lives. It's not a period like any other. So this is a slice of history that modern historians call the Old Akkadian period after the dialect of the Akkadian language that was spoken at the time. And this was a period of truly profound transformation. And Nhidwana would have been right in the middle of that transformation. So her father was a king named Sagan, who is essentially the world's first emperor. So before him, the cities of um, Sumer, so the area that we would now call southern Iraq, they were independent city-states, and they were very much independent, both culturally um, and uh, in terms of their self-administration. You know, each of them might use different ways of counting. Uh, they each had perhaps different dialects, they had different deities they worshipped, and so on and so forth. Um, and of course, they were very much connected. They entered into these rather complex webs of alliance and conflict and trade and so on and so forth. Um, but they were very much uh, independent city-states, and that all changes with Sagan and Hidwana's father. He unites these city-states under uh, one rule, uh, removes their independence, and so creates the first empire. And then he installs in Hidwana as high priestess in the city of Ur, which would have been in the southern corner of the reign. Uh, a very powerful city and a very prestigious city. Um, and I think it's natural enough to think of in Hidwana in that position as being an ambassador of the new empire. Um, it's uncertain how much direct power she would have had as high priestess. We don't know exactly what the high priestesses did, um, but for sure it was an incredibly prestigious position. And I think an argument can be made for Inhidwana being one of the most, if not the most, powerful woman, uh, women of her day. Um, we know very little about 
her actual life. Like we only have scattered hints and references. Um, we know, for example, and sometimes we know these like uh, oddly specific things. In the ancient world, people would have had what's called a cylinder seal, which is basically an ancient form of a signature. Um, and we have the cylinder seals of a number of her servants. So I really love this fact that we know her hairdresser's name this is one of the things i love about her that you know we do get these flashes of information that her hairdresser was called ilumpalil and the steward of her estate was called adda and so on and so forth um but we don't know who her mother was for sure we don't know where or exactly when she was born we don't know when she died and so on and so forth but we know that her life would have been plagued both by instability but also by rapid cultural transformation this is not just a period of political unification this is also a period where pretty much everything is turned upside down even including very literally the writing system undergoes a change where it's flipped 90 degrees and that's just symbolic of how many things were happening at this time the soldiers of the empire made their way into faraway lands so there's a real sense that during this period the world is expanding very physically people know about regions that they would never have heard about before at the same time, trade is also expanding. And so all sorts of exotic wares are arriving in the port city of Ur when Hidwan lived. She would have seen objects that her, um, that her predecessors would never have even heard about. Um, and as a result, uh, the craftsmen of this period uh, and the, you know, the, the ancient engineers, if you'll call them that, they make huge advances in metallurgy and in art and so on and so forth. So she lived during a period where everything was being turned upside down, but also in a period of constant revolts and uprisings, because this new empire wasn't exactly popular among the old uh, power holders. And the main poem that is attributed to in Hidwana depicts exactly such an uprising that... Uh, forces her into exile away from the temple in which she lived. That's so fascinating. I think it, it's so interesting to think about her writing in, in her era, um, especially, you know, a time of, of great transformation in many different ways, of, as you've mentioned. Next, I have a rather large question about the idea of authorship. You mentioned that Ehejuana is well known among scholars of Mesopotamia, and as we talked about, you know, modern, modern day Iraq as the world's first named author but less so to the general public who envision, you know, the world's first authors as the great male tragedians um, of Greece and Rome. And in the introduction, you ask this really fascinating question, which I'll repeat here for our listeners. Um, you write, what would the history of Western literature look like if it began not with Homer and his war-hungry heroes, but with a woman from ancient Iraq who sang her hymns to the goddess of chaos and change? I'm wondering if you can perhaps answer this question for our listeners a little bit. Um, you know, first, why is it so important to think about authorship in Ehedwana's time and what might it mean for us in the modern world? Absolutely. So just first off the bat to, to dispel any possible myths, it's not that literature as such begins within Hinduana. There are poems and texts that are much older than her. And, you know, again, as I say, even 500 years older. Um, but she marks the earliest instance in which a text was attributed to a person that we can identify in the historical record. Um, also, in like enchantingly, enthrallingly, uh, that text, the Exaltation of Inanna that I mentioned earlier, and that's not the only poem that's attributed to Inhiduana, but it's the best known one, that text actually contains a description of her authorship. So if you want to think about the origins of authorship, she really is the place to start. Uh, now, as we might get into a little bit later, there is an academic debate about whether the historical Inhiduana was actually the author of these poems or whether they were attributed to her later. But I think either way, it does 
doesn't really matter for the cultural history of authorship. It really does begin with Inhidwana. The very idea that a poem can be attributed to a, a specific person, that begins with her. Um, and I think that is a fascinating thing for any number of reasons, um, in part because it reminds us that, you know, authorship has become such an ingrained part of literary culture and literary practice. A podcast like this interviews authors, uh, you know, and Inhidwana shows us that things can be different. Um, and that I think is uh, it's always interesting to studying origins just as reminders that things can be um, arranged in, in different ways. And I like to say that history can make the present strange by reminding us that things could have gone different ways, things can be organized differently, uh, and so on and so forth. So to study the origins of authorship is also to remind ourselves that authorship is not a necessary part of literature. It arose at a specific moment in time for specific reasons. Um, so that's one of the interesting things about authorship in Hinduana's poems. But at the same time, um, the depiction of authorship that we find in this text is just so absolutely fascinating. Um, I really like, uh, I, I'm really drawn to it. It is often a depiction of authorship that uh, entails a certain surrender of the text. One of the key metaphors in the text is that in Hidwana says that she has given birth to the text, um, which, you know, in part uh, ties to her feminine body, but it also implies a note of surrender, you know. Um, she gives the, the text that she has created to others so that they may perform and circulate it. And I think birth uh, implies connection, but it also implies separation. And that's just one of the many fascinating things about how authorship is depicted. Uh, another fascinating thing is that this word that describes in an Hidwana uh, creating the text is rendered in some manuscripts as given birth, but in other manuscripts is rendered as um, in Hidwana speaking the text or in Hidwana creating the text or in Hidwana releasing the text. And all of those four words are actually the same word in Sumerian, just spelled differently to give different meanings. And I think that's so fascinating as well that you can actually conceive of authorship in all of those ways, as creation, as birth, as speech, as release. Um, and have, using a word that carries those different connotations implies a very complex, very nuanced view of authorship at the very moment when authorship is born. So that that's some of the many reasons I find in Hidwana's uh, depiction of authorship interesting. As to the more general question of what literature would look like if it began with her, I mean, I don't know. I, I would love to find out. And I think uh, that is uh, something that lies outside the scope of this book, but it's a question that is really central to this project. Um, I, you know, we, we've, for many years, uh, feminists and other kinds of activists have tried to uh, make the curriculum of literary history more diverse, make the bookshelves uh, of uh, our bookshops and uh, the curricula of, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, institutions more diverse. And I really do believe that Inhinduana should be part of that project, uh, in part because in the ancient world, especially, even if you do want to include more female voices or more non-white voices, um, there is sometimes less to choose between than we would like. Um, and Inhinduana really is a prime example of female voice in the ancient world in a really interesting way. Again, that is true, I think, even if the poems were composed by others and attributed to her. She's a fascinating figure regardless. Yeah, thanks so much. Um for that very rich response. Um, I think it's so interesting that you've mentioned that um, she describes, or it, it feels in some way that she's giving birth to her poems, especially as you write in the text that, at, at least in her era, high priestesses 
were in some ways not supposed to have children, even though in her, you know, her successor maybe didn't follow that. Um, and how um, she was, Ehedwana was a woman really not defined by her father or her children um, in this in this era where women were so often. Um, but I, I, I guess since you mentioned that there is some controversy surrounding um, you know, what texts she actually authored. I'm wondering if you could just tell us more about that and how did you decide, you know, which poems to include and, and which to exclude from, from this translation? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there is, as I said, a controversy that goes uh, back all the way to 1980, but there is really no resolution to it at the moment. So in a nutshell, the problem is this. And here I'm going to borrow a phrase that some of my colleagues have coined. And that is that Inhidwana has led three lives. The first life is that of the historical person in Hidwana, whose dramatic life I sketched out at the beginning of this podcast. The second life is that of a literary author, and that comes some 500 years later. That is when we have the texts, the manuscripts uh, containing these poems that were attributed to her. There's a 500-year gap between her life and these manuscripts. Now, it's possible that uh, the poems were uh, transmitted orally on a now lost written form during those 500 years, but it is also possible that they were com uh, composed in the intervening centuries. And just briefly, the third life is, of course, her life right now, so that of an uh, ancient figure in the modern world. Now, going back to this question, I think it is an important question for all sorts of reasons. It's important to date a poem. It, it helps literary analysis in all sorts of other ways. But I also think it's important to say that this debate has really hindered in Hidwana's reception in her third life. Um, I think it's done a lot of collateral damage. And at the present, there is just simply no piece of evidence, no good argument that will resolve the question one way or another. Part of the problem here is that we know from other Sumerian texts that their language was actually being updated as they circulated. So there are other examples of texts that we thought um, dated to quite a late period um, based on the, the language in which they're written. But then we found manuscripts of that same poem that were much, much earlier, earlier even than in Hidwana. Um, but it's just that its language had been updated um, to make it more understandable. And that might be the case with in Hidwana too, even though in some cases her poems evince linguistic features that would make a, a later date more likely. Well, you don't know. This might just also be a question of the um, of later scribes editing her work. It's it's a it's an unresolvable question at this time. But I think actually um, going back to the other part of your question, one way we can deal with this question in perhaps more productive way is by going back actually to the metaphor of birth. So as you mentioned. Um, you know, these high, like the, the, the metaphor of Enhidwana giving birth to the text is especially charged because these high priestesses were not supposed to give birth. It was part of their religious role to abstain from childbirth. Um, and that is a big deal in the ancient world because your children, they don't just bring you joy as children. They're also supposed to provide for you, not just when you grow old, but actually even after you're dead. Um, they're supposed to provide funerary offerings for you in the afterlife. So having children was a big deal. And it was really, you know, um, a widely accepted part of life that, you know, the more children you had, the more provisions you had in the underworld. So that leaves the high priestesses in a bit of a pickle. Um, but what they do instead is that they rely on the high priestesses that come after them. Um, and so that's the same is true of in Hidwana. She would have expected the high priestesses that came after her to provide for her and to continually sustain her. And she 
saw herself as part of this legacy of priestesses that cared for the preceding ones. And I think the same is true of her texts. Regardless of who exactly uh, they were composed by, when they were composed, they survived through time, through the labor of others, through the labor of scholars who uh, circulated them, stupid, uh, students who copied them out, um, maybe performers, we're not fully sure about that, um, but also through the labor of modern scholars like philologists and translators and so on and so forth. So just as the uh, other high priestesses fed the dead in Hidwana, so uh, there have been all sorts of people who have been part of Project in Hidwana, uh, maybe in small ways like finessing the language of her text and maybe in big ways by taking the myth of the famous high priestess and turning it into a poem. Yeah, thanks so much for that um, really generative way of kind of thinking about the controversy surrounding, you know, her authorship. And I'm wondering, you know, as more of us learn about Ehedwana, there are many physical objects that give life to ancient civilizations. You've talked about some of them, including cylinder sills. Um, and, you know, they these give... Um, us insight into the lives of women as well as um, high elites and and um, and different political figures. And the Morgan Library in New York, for example, has just concluded an exhibition on Ehedouana and women of Mesopotamia. I'm wondering if you could talk to us more about the physical aspect of your translation. What was it like to translate from the cuneiform? And did any other artifacts aid your research? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when we talk about Nhidwana, we can't get around talking about the disc of Nhidwana. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit about that first, and then I'll go into the the physicality of the translation itself, which is also an interesting question afterwards. But the disc of Nhidwana is one of those rare objects that we actually can attribute not to the literary figure uh, 500 years later, but to the actual historical person. We have the cylinder seals, and then we have the disc, and those are really some of the key elements in establishing that Nhidwana was a real historical person. It was actually, incidentally, also the disc that proved that Sargon was a real historical person. That was the first evidence that he wasn't just a a fiction of uh, cuneiform historiography either. Um, But either way, so the disc uh, has two sides to it. One of them is a relief that shows in Hidwana presiding over an offering, uh, what's called a libation, that's a liquid offering, so it could be beer or honey or milk or some such, uh, that is being poured out onto an altar. And the disc itself commemorates the creation of a new altar for the goddess Inanna, who is also the subject of uh, in Hidwana's poems. Um, so this new altar is being um, uh, consecrated. Uh, and there are various attendants, um, probably male attendants uh, surrounding the figure of Enhidwana, but they're all shown as smaller than her, which is really important in the visual arts of ancient Mesopotamia. The largest figure is marked as the most important figure. So here Enhidwana is marked as having a special status, uh, which again speaks to the prominence and the privilege of these high priestesses. Um, And on the other side of that disc uh, is an inscription, uh, which states, you know, gives the name Enhidwana, that's how we know it's her. Uh, and then it then says, uh, High Priestess of the Moon God Nanna, Spouse of Nanna, uh, Daughter of Sargon, King of the World. Uh, and then it describes the consecration of this altar. And, you know, I always say, if I were 
the son of the world's most important, most powerful person. I might put that first, but not in Hiruana. She insists on putting her own profession as high priestess first. And then she adds this really fascinating comment. Not only is she the high priestess of Nana, she is also the spouse of Nana, which tells us that these high priestesses were, if not always, then at least in some religious contexts, identified as the, the living embodiment of the spouse of the god um, whom they served. So in Hiduana would probably in some rituals have acted as the ritual embodiment of Ningal, who was the wife of the, of the moon god Nanda. Which again, you know, very few lines, but they do give us a lot of information. So that is the, the, the disc itself. The disc has a fascinating figure. Sorry, it has a fascinating history as well. It really is an example of how Inhiduana was cared for and part constructed by the people who came after her. Um, we know that the disc survived uh, a raid on the city of Ur at a later period and that it was pieced together by uh, one of Inhiduana's successors. And uh, this successor, buried her own statuette next to Inhiduana's uh, disc, clearly wanting to be associated with her. So again, it speaks to the sense of uh, a legacy that continues to, to shape her figure in, in later times. But you also asked about like the, the material elements of the translation itself, which is, is a really interesting thing. Like um, part of... Uh, the, the the special experience of working with the exaltation um, is that this is one of the few texts from all of ancient Iraq that has survived intact. Uh, you mentioned my translation of Gilgamesh, and Gilgamesh is full of holes, is full of these fragmentary passages that are called lacunae, or little lakes, <laughs> by philologists. Uh, that's not the case for the exaltation. It's actually one complete text. But that doesn't mean that uh, I can just look at one cuneiform copy. Uh, the text as we have it is pieced together from uh, more than 100 manuscripts uh, that give slightly different versions. So the process of translating a text like that is also the process of looking at what these different uh, versions of the poem say. Do they differ in ways that are important or do they just differ in minor ways that can be discarded in a translation? Um, so it's also an awareness that what looks perhaps on the page like a single text is actually a hundred manuscripts, uh, which is also really quite a lot. Um, like uh, what the editor of the poem called it the world's first bestseller, uh, based on the number of manuscripts that, uh, I mean, that's a bit of an, acron an anachronism, but you know what I mean. Like it gives, it gives you a sense that this is actually quite a, a, a large number of manuscripts. Um, so one of the things that I worked with um, visually to uh, in my engagement with the poem is that for a long time, I was really, really struggling with this poem. It's a very difficult poem to translate. And one of the things that I kept running into is how enormously concise this poem is. It's really, really compact. Um, and it feels compact in the, in the way it's written, in the way, it's, uh, like in the way that the cuneiform signs are arranged. It's relatively few signs per line. But if you put it in an English translation, it becomes you know, 15 words or more just because so much meaning is rolled up into those signs. And so after struggling with that in a while and like feeling that my translation was always so much more bulky and weighty than the original text, I decided to do something rather unorthodox or unconventional uh, within the field of philology, and that is to introduce a different set of line breaks. So not following the line breaks of the original, but making my own, um, and sometimes making them at places that can feel a little erratic or a little um, odd. Uh, 
breaking a line after the word the or and, for example. Uh, and the reason I did that was that I feel that the poem, the original poem, especially the exaltation and the hymn to Inanna, they combine a real sense of compactness with a real sense of flow. And I felt like those shorter lines allowed me to recreate something like that. They kept the text both intense, but also um, in free flow, which is what I wanted it to have. Yeah, thanks for that. I think that um, provides a really great transition to my next question, which is moving away from more of the physical aspects of translating into the art of translation, which you've talked a little bit about already. Um, and I'm wondering if you can tell us, um, you've talked a little bit about the challenges, but more about the challenges, perhaps to um, in your approach to translating a Hedwana Sumerian. It's in particular, and also, you know, if there are any gratifications, anything that you're really proud of in, in your translations. And um, I know that you uh, had a discussion of the Sumerian word me from your essay, um, The Honeyed Mouth. So maybe um, we could talk a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, first of all, uh, just... <laughs> To, I mean, this is a, a relatively free translation, and I, I had to make my peace with that. I think with Gilgamesh, the translation there, I really tried to strike a, strike a balance between having a translation that, of course, was poetic and elegant, but still did stay relatively true to the original text. Um, within Hidwana, I, I very much more veer to the side of uh, a free translation. I wouldn't say a paraphrase. I wouldn't say this is a new poem. I still think this is a translation, um, but uh, some of my colleagues will, will might disagree. We'll see about that. Um, but but because I was making a more free translation, I decided to also uh, create a much more literal one and upload it on a website that is a companion website to this book. The website is in hidwana.org. And there you can find a line-by-line -line translation, including the original Sumerian text, a transliteration of that Sumerian, uh, of that cuneiform into our letters, a vague, uh, very... Um, uh, explorative, let's say, guess of what the text might have sounded like, um, as well as a commentary on the philological and grammatical problems, but also the poetic features that are worth noting in each line, which I hope will sort of give readers who want to go beyond my free rendition of the text into an engagement with the Sumerian, um, a, a place to go. So in hidwana.org. Uh, and then if you want to go straight to the translation, it's in hidwana.org slash exaltation. Um, but yeah, I mean, like in Hidwana's Sumerian is extremely challenging. Sumerian is extremely challenging to start with, but she really strains and stretches what that language can do almost to a breaking point. I think she can be compared in the English uh, language, perhaps with somebody like um, uh, Joel Manley Hopkins or Emily Dickinson, who really push language to its breaking point in order to express um, what is in both the case of Hopkins and Dickinson and in Hidwana, a conception of the divinity, uh, which for in Hidwana is this goddess Inanna, um, that really transcends normal language use. Uh, in the ancient world, you might think of somebody like Pindar. Really, language is really being pushed here. And translating that is, is, is a difficult feat. I think one of the things that hardened me in my attempts at translating her is that we actually have also have an ancient translation of passages from one of her poems. Um, and I can see them taking a lot of freedom and also them struggling uh, in the sense that they use words that are extremely rare in Akkadian, the language that the poem is 
is being translated into. Um, and they are also trying to recreate this these extreme word, uh, extreme verbal games that she has. She has so much alliteration, so much uh, vowel pat patterning that is really intricate. Um, and so, you know, if they're struggling with it back then, I feel more okay about struggling with it now. Um, but I, I do think that I arrived at a point where I felt that um, at least part of the power and the expressive range that I find in these poems could be felt uh, in the English translation. So, so I am relatively satisfied with it, I will say. Uh, maybe that's an act of hubris. We'll, we'll see how it's, how it's received, but, uh, but at least I feel, I feel good about it for now. So the May is a great example of, of one of these uh, words that if you believe in untranslatable words, then the May should definitely be included in that category. Um, so yeah, May rather than me. But um, the May is a word that I decided to consistently translate as power, just to have one word that translated it uh, the, the, throughout so that the readers can sort of also just spot how differently it's being used. Um, I think discussing the May is a whole like it's a whole podcast episode in itself. It's a really tricky Sumerian concept. And I think my easiest way of explaining it is to say if a god is a god of something, that something is a May. So you have a god of justice, and so there is the May justice. You have a god of carpenters, so carpentry is a May. Um, and so on and so forth. Like the May are the institutions, uh, the actions. Uh, the elements that make up the cultured, civilized order and that are controlled by the gods. Um, but that also includes things like sex, uh, potentially sex work, depending on how you interpret a key line. Um, it, it includes things like success, but also failure. It includes things like hope, but also disappointment, uh, kingship, but also servitude, uh, and so on and so forth. It's a very tricky concept. It is unfortunately absolutely central to Enhiduana's poems. But uh, yeah, here we are. Yeah, it would be great to um, listen to the full podcast episode about men. Um, and time. yeah, uh, I think we've talked a little bit about um, the way in which we can tr maybe use Enhiduana's writings for to learn about um, Mesopotamia today. But um, also in the book, you've talked about how her writing had survived from the practice of um, inscriptions um, in old Babylonian schools um, called edubas, which you have noted translated to houses where tablets are given out. Um, and we talked a little bit about your website, which I was going to mention, which is great. Um, and I wonder if you have, you know, a vision of of how Ahedwana's works could be taught in schools today, whether that, you know, be uh, more primary schools or even in college, and how some of her work can be can speak to some of the our current issues in the world. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and I think that's a great point. Like, Ahedwana has been part of an educational setting um, since as early as we can trace the history of her poems. So I definitely would um, encourage teachers to also just to integrate that aspect uh, in whatever teaching they do, um, because it also gives students a sense of like being in the same position as students um, uh, 4,000 years ago, which I think is will be exciting for many. I, I think um, one of the interesting ways in which one can use in Hidwana to teach, but also to, to teach teaching, is to consider what is it that teaching actually does. I think in the original uh, context in which we find these poems, in Hidwana is 
part of a world where a group of students who will become courtiers uh, at the king's court or civil servants uh, in the empire or priests at the temple, they are being given access to a um, a set of uh, literary reference points um, and a set of, of cultural um, markers, um, including this language Sumerian, that by the time that we can see these uh, these uh, schools teaching in Hirwana, Sumerian had died out. So it had become a language much like Latin might be today or Sanskrit uh, becomes in India, it becomes a language of, of learning and uh, religious rituals. Um, so just the very language of the poem, but also the world, the historical world in which the poems are set is a remote one. Um, so teaching these poems in the ancient world is a way of introducing the students into a, a, a cultural sphere uh, that they wouldn't have access to without education. So it's also a way of setting the students apart from their uneducated uh, fellow Babylonians, um, which is, you know, um, an interesting thing to reflect on. But to answer more directly, like what can Inhidwana do in, in a cultural, sorry, in an educational setting today? I think that's a really good question. I think <clears throat> I have, um, I think my, my honest answer to that is that when I was writing the Gilgamesh book and when I have been talking about Gilgamesh, part of what I love about Gilgamesh um, and Gilgamesh also in an educational context is how many things Gilgamesh is about and how many things Gilgamesh is felt to be about. Whether, you know, Gilgamesh is seen as a story about grief, but also a story of climate change and a story about longing for immortality and the story of uh, all sorts of things. Within Hiduana, I think she runs the real risk of being pigeonholed as a woman author, the woman author almost. And there isn't yet a sense of just how many things, just how many topics and themes are contained in these poems, because I find her to be an enormously rich author with so many different topics. And I don't want teachers to just teach her as, as a woman's author, because I actually think it, it's much more rewarding to, to let the students discover different aspects of the poems by themselves. And I think there are so many themes that come up in these poems that could be relevant today. Uh, some of those themes are exile, uh, war, um, also the terrifying forces of nature. And Hidwana's view of nature is incredibly bleak, which, you know, our own nature, uh, view of nature is unfortunately also having to become more and more bleak in these uh, decades uh, ahead of us. Um, there is a sense of true social disruption and what social disruption might mean uh, in Hidwana's poetry. But there's also, the, there's a focus on what poems can do, what texts can do, what literature can do. Um, and there is also a conception of the divine, which I think is really interesting and will be interesting to many students. Um, and Hidwana is an interesting figure, but also the goddess Inanna uh, is an incredibly interesting figure. Um, and perhaps a way of talking about female empowerment, a way into talking about female empowerment that isn't as simplistic uh, or as, you know, as cliched uh, as some other feminist figures. Inanna is, you know... Um, both an enormously empowering figure, but also a terrifying figure and a deeply problematic figure, uh, you know, as the goddess of, of sex, but also of war, uh, of love, but also of destruction, uh, the goddess of change and conflict and contradiction and paradox and so on and so forth. Um, she's an enormously three-dimensional, I would even say more than three-dimensional. In Hiduana's depiction of her, she appears, you know, a 20-dimensional um, uh, figure. So I think... Uh, 
And Hidwana is a useful um, way into literary history, a way also of talking about who gets included in literary history, who doesn't get included in literary history. But Inanna also really has to be a central consideration when you're teaching in, in Hidwana. Uh, what kind of goddess is this? What might she do for the students? Um, how might the students relate to her or not relate to her? What notions of religion, of godhood, of divinity does she bring to the table? but also of, of you know of womanhood uh, of gender and also of gender subversion um, like again it's that's also part of my uh, insistence that we can't just teach uh, in Hidoana or discuss in Hidoana as a, as a female author uh, or as an author of the female somehow because one of the scenes in the hymn to Inanna involves the creation of these groups of people who defy established uh, gender categories who have been transformed from when men into women or me- women into men um, so yeah again that I think I hope that that gives you a sense of just how many different kinds of topics uh, in Hidoana can can be uh, brought to bear on Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so fascinating, the range um, of, of topics that she, she talks about. And uh, I wanted to turn to what you have kind of mentioned, um, Hedwana's environmental metaphors and her, her use of nature in, in her hymns. Um, and she does, you know, describe nature as kind of this terrifying force in order, you know, to evoke the gods. And um, in the hymn, The Exaltation of Inanna, she writes, uh, quote, you are like a flash flood that gushes down the mountains. You are supreme in heaven and earth. You are Inanna. And I'm sure there are, you know, there are uh, additional rich, you know, environmental metaphors in her work. But, you know, in addition to your work on translation, you're interested in the green student movement um, and, uh, you know, current modern environmental movements. And this question might be a bit of a stretch, but do you see any resonance between your reading of Ahedjuana's environmental metaphors and your current work on modern environmental movements? And how how do you see yourself moving from your work on translation to your, the next phase you know, of, of your research? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, this is a, there's a bunch of interesting questions here. And I think, you know, in Hidwana's appearance onto the modern stage uh, coincided with the feminist movement. It also coincided with the Gulf Wars. So another use of in Hidwana's uh, poems in the modern reception have been uh, to talk about the wars in Iraq and people who have been displaced away from Iraq. Um, but I think as times change, so the reception of in Hidwana changes. And that's you know, as I always stress, that's always a good thing because it, it gives us a sense of the, the richness and depth of these poems. Um, so I do think that we will see more green readings or adaptations or retellings of in Hidwana. Um, I don't know if green is the right word there. Maybe like what in Hidwana helps us articulate is also despair. Uh, these are poems that are like green sounds so hopeful and optimistic. If these poems are about the climate, they're about climate catastrophe. Um, and it's really interesting that uh, I'm not I'm not a geologist, so my knowledge here is relatively limited, but um, it is interesting that in Hidwana's lifetime may seems to have coincided with major climactic uh, transformations in what's known as the 4.2K uh, event, <laughs> 4.2 kilo year event, meaning an event that took place around 4,200 years ago. So around the lifetime of in Hidwana, both her lifetime and this climate event are difficult to place, so we can't exactly match them onto each other. But certainly uh, her poems seem to indicate that they were written during a time of uh, natural <laughs> devastation because 
like nature appears in Nhidwana's poems either as a source of destruction and danger in the form of these flash floods or whatever else it might be, or as the victims of devastation and danger in the forms of, you know, uh, lions being hunted or animals being killed. So it is, it is the furthest possible thing we can come from a rosy picture of nature. Uh, you asked earlier which poems I had chosen to include or not to include in the uh, in the selection. One of the poems that I didn't include because I, for various reasons, don't believe it was written by Nhidwana or even attributed to Nhidwana in the ancient world is the myth of Inanna and Ebich, which is the story of Inanna destroying this otherwise paradisical landscape on a mountain. And even though I don't believe that that poem was attributed to Inanna, uh, to Nhidwana, uh, I still see references to that myth scattered throughout her poetry. So this destruction of a mountain um, and the forest by which it was covered, uh, that is very central to Nhidwana's poem. And again, gives you an image of what kind of, uh, what role nature plays in her poems. As to the relation between translation and and, and climate change, I really think there are it's a really interesting topic and one that, that I have uh, thought about a lot. I think just to give you an example of, of a connection between these, these things that otherwise might seem uh, uh, unconnected is, you know, the word aurochs, um, which is constantly popping up in, um, in Nhidwana's poems as a descriptor of, of Inanna. And an aurochs is a wild cow, uh, a wild bovine. Um, and in some... Other translations, it's rendered as wild cow. Um, in part, I didn't like that because it sounds like mad cow disease, but also I felt like it was important to have this foreign word because the species is now extinct, right? So I didn't want a word that sounded like an animal that could be alive today because it isn't. Like, I think it's important that the species is extinct. And it actually went extinct relatively recently in like the 17th century, which is not, you know, it's not Mesopotamia times. It is within the early modern period that it, it goes extinct. Um, and I think that's, that is an example of one of the other challenges or one of the other considerations, you know, at what point will the word tiger come to sound like the word aurochs? At which point do some of these words become dated? Like we are living through right now uh, a wave of mass extinction. And there are all sorts of animal species where, you know, their death causes holes in the language or causes words to change in nature. They become almost foreign words. uh, And that will only be more the case in the, in the decades ahead. That's so fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, you know, we've covered a, a lot of ground and of course there's more to explore in, in the book, but, you know, as we come to the, our, the conclusion of our conversation today, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about um, your new book? So I think um, one of the things that uh, again, might relate to this conversation about not, if not specific climate change, then the kinds of time we live in is what is it exactly that Nhidwana is doing by promoting Inanna in her hymns? It is, on one sense, uh, a very political, uh, straightforward political statement. Inanna was the patron deity of uh, Nhidwana's father's empire. So she is promoting the empire of which she was a part. It also is a personal statement uh, because uh, Nhidwana, as 
shown by the disc had a real personal affiliation with this goddess who was not the goddess she was employed by. Um, at the same time, there is all sorts of religious considerations, theological considerations in elevating one god over another. Um, but I think also there is a sense in which this is an ontological statement. It's a statement about the nature of reality. Uh, the gods were thought to inhere in the world and control the world in a very active sense. So saying that one god is the queen of all the gods, as in Hidwana says about Inanna, that also tells you about what kind of world she believes we live in. And a world ruled by Inanna is a world that is ruled not by the stable um, stable uh, hierarchical order of the male gods who rule the gods in most other texts from the ancient world. A world ruled by Inanna is a world that is ruled by change, by contradiction, by paradox, by unpredictability. And I think at the end of the day, if Inhidwana's poems are relevant, then sadly that is because that is the kind of world we are now again coming to inhabit. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to share your process of translation and more about Enhedwana's life and impact. This is really a one-of-a-kind collection, and I urge our listeners to pick up this new translation. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join us on the podcast. It was a delight to be here. Ahedwana, the complete poems of the world's first author by Sophus Hell, is now available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.